0: And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, we're going to eventually get to the book of Genesis, but let's begin in Romans 4. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 941. To sort of orient ourselves here, we're going to read Romans 4 1 through 5. Romans 4, 1 through 5. This is God's Word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. May God give us years to hear his word. On August fourteenth, 2020, a New York Times article came out that ended up sort of accidentally shocking our nation. It was on that day that the Times published a piece that's commonly known today as the 1619 Project. Uh, Raise your hand if anybody's heard of this article or the whole movement connected to it many of you what is the 1619 project you ask well this project attempts to argue that the real founding of our nation was not in 1776 with the signing of the declaration of independence instead the real founding of our nation took place in 1619 when slaves were first brought to jamestown virginia so forget everything you were taught in elementary school about benjamin franklin and thomas jefferson forget all about the boston tea party and lexington and concord Uh, Forget George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. The real founding of our nation began when slaves were first brought to our continent. Well, in the months since the publication of this article, it's been, interestingly, quite discredited as completely inaccurate. Uh, Most people think it's at best ignorant, uh, at worst downright deceptive. The fact that slavery existed everywhere in the world in those days would seem to prove it wrong. But what I want us to think about now is why is this even important. Why is it worth debating? Uh, You know, you think about it, none of us were living either in 1619 or 1776. Uh, These events took place hundreds of years ago, so who really cares? Well, I think we all instinctively understand that this matters, and it matters a lot. If our nation began on the foundation of slavery, then our nation is all about oppression and corruption. But if it began with freedom and liberty, it's an entirely different picture, But it all has to do with the beginnings and what our nation was founded on. Even if you're not much into history, you understand that the beginning of something determines so much about what that thing is and becomes. Whether it be the beginning of our nation, the beginning of your family history, the beginning of the company that you work for, being familiar with something's origins help us better understand why things are the way they are and again, where they're going. In fact, I'd contend that you can't properly understand anything without understanding just a little bit about its history. Well, this morning, we're going to go back to the very beginning, the beginning of everything, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. That's what the word Genesis even means. Uh, We hear the word Genesis used that way sometimes in our culture, Uh, the Genesis of this or that, the Genesis of the space program. Well, in the book of Genesis, God has provided us with the beginning of nearly everything, the beginning of the universe and the beginning of the human race, the beginning of a rebellion and the beginning of murder, the beginning of marriage and the beginning of el- agriculture. Uh, really, everything gets its start in this book of Genesis. And as we come to understand this book better, we'll be better equipped to make sense of the world in which we live and live in this world that God has created. Now, I should tell you up front, I'm not entirely sure how long we're going to be in the book of Genesis. I don't intend to do the entire book at this time. But I do, I do want to at least do chapters 1 through 12. I might keep going, depending on how the series is going, and keep going into chapter 15, maybe 20. We'll see. And let me tell you where we're going this morning. This morning's sermon is going to be rather unusual. Usually I take a passage of Scripture, sometimes a few verses, and we study that passage carefully, considering what it means in its original context and how God is speaking to us through it today. This morning, however, we're going to try and overview the entire book of Genesis, all 50 chapters. And I was talking to Kyle, he wanted me to estimate how long this sermon might be. Well, I was thinking, you know, let's spend maybe 10 minutes per chapter, and it won't make for an entirely too long sermon. Just joking. But my hope is that by giving you an overview of Genesis, later sermons will make better sense, and you'll be able to fit the pieces together. And to over Genesis, overview Genesis, I'd like us to consider four questions together. Four questions on this book of beginnings. Question number one, why study Genesis? Why take the next few months here and the majority of our sermons to look at this ancient book? And let me give you several reasons why it's helpful for modern Christians to be familiar with the book of Genesis. First, Genesis is just as much God's word as the teaching of Jesus is God's word. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? The book of Genesis, even though it's written by Moses thousands of years ago, is just as much God's word as the teaching of Jesus is God's word. It contains God's message to God's people. And as the people of God who desire to know the whole counsel of God, we want to know what Genesis says. Genesis is certainly part of that all scripture that Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 3.16, which he describes as breathed out by God. What Genesis says, God says. Genesis was actually one of Jesus' very favorite books to quote in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus refers to ten separate events coming from Genesis, and he speaks of them all as literal history. He'll quote Genesis to silence the Pharisees, and they'll have no response. So Jesus certainly believed Genesis was God's word, and if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we need to hold Jesus' view of Scripture. Here's a second reason. Genesis is foundational to the rest of the Bible. Genesis is foundational to the rest of the Bible. If you really want to understand how the entire Bible works together, fits together, you've got to begin at the beginning. In a way, Genesis is like the opening act of a play or the opening chapter of a book. You know, just take some classic book and try to imagine understanding that book without the first big section. You know, let's take something like Lord of the Rings, which I know many of us here love. Try to imagine Lord of the Rings without the first, say, 10 chapters. Uh, the book wouldn't make any sense. I mean, why, who cares about this ring and who is Gollum? It, it makes no sense. So also, the rest of the Bible will not properly fit together if we don't have some grasp of what the beginning is about. Third reason, Genesis contains almost all the central teachings of Christianity in seed form. Genesis contains almost all the central teachings of Christianity in seed form. You think about nearly every significant doctrine, every significant teaching, every significant worldview truth that we hold precious, it really does get its beginning here. The beginning of the universe, the dignity of the human race, why there are different ethnicities, why people speak different languages, why there is murder in our hearts, how God sovereignly controls the universe, all this and more begins in Genesis, and it really just snowballs throughout the rest of the Bible. John Currid put this well when he wrote this, The truth, and this may sound shocking, is that almost every important church doctrine is found in seed form in the book of Genesis. If we in the church today are to understand properly such basic doctrines as sin and total depravity, judgment, salvation, the character of God, the Messiah, and a myriad of other important and relevant biblical subjects, we must begin our study in Genesis. You may have heard of a ministry known as Answers in Genesis. It's actually a wonderful ministry. I highly recommend. Uh, But somebody hears that and they might think, you know, that's kind of odd. Why isn't there an Answers in Leviticus? or in Answers in Isaiah, or in Answers in Romans ministry? Why Uh, Answers in Genesis? What's so special about that book? Well, this is the reason why nearly all other doctrines, all other teachings, all the foundations of our worldview get their start here. And if you get the foundation wrong, later truths won't make sense. Genesis really is a unique book in the Bible and has something to say about just about everything. Here's a fourth reason why studying Genesis is worthwhile. It's because Genesis highlights the character of God. Genesis highlights the character of God. Now, I've argued this many times before, but I think the chief reason why we have problems in our Christian lives, like we do, is because we don't know God as we ought. We don't understand the character of God as we should. So often, our understanding of who God is is more shaped by intuition or family tradition or by what we always thought God was like than by the Word of God. And when that's the case, we run into all sorts of problems in daily life. Problems with anxiety, fear, depression. They are often rooted in misunderstandings of the character of God. And yet since Genesis, and really most of the Old Testament, stresses who God is, it can be extraordinarily helpful for coming to understand what God is like. The same God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus is the same God at work in Genesis. Creating, redeeming, guiding And as we come to understand Genesis better, we'll come to understand what our God is like better. Let me give you a fifth and final reason why I think it's worthwhile to devote the next couple months to this book. Because Genesis is dangerously familiar. Genesis is dangerously familiar. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you think about it, but a lot of the stories from the Bible as a whole that we're familiar with come from Genesis. I mean, who here hasn't heard of, say, Adam and Eve? Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel. Uh, If you're a little bit more familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac, Jacob's ladder, Joseph being sold into slavery. Even if we're not believers, we know of these stories. I mean some of them have been turned into movies. Uh, You can even get online and buy action figures for some of the characters that are involved in these stories. Uh, So nearly everybody is at least somewhat familiar with Genesis. But even if we, we know these stories, do we understand their real significance? I mean, do we understand why they're in the Bible? We might know about Cain and Abel, but why is that in the Bible? What does God intend to teach us through it? We might know about Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, but again, why is that in, in the Bible? What am I to trust and obey in response to that? I'm afraid most Christians don't really get the significance of these stories and why God included them in Scripture. While we know these stories, we don't know again why they're there, how they're to function, how they're to build our faith, how they're to shape our lives. But again, if all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, then there must be some significance in something as odd as Jacob being bought by mandrakes. And hopefully as we get into these stories in the weeks to come, we'll understand better how they relate to our daily lives. Well, those are just five reasons on why we should study the book of Genesis and why it's going to be worth our time these next couple months. Let me give you a second question. Let's talk about the storyline of this book. What is the overarching storyline of Genesis? And here, like I said, I want to sort of preview all 50 chapters in maybe 10 minutes uh, so that hopefully the, other, the pieces fit together. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, we believe Genesis was written by Moses. Moses, the man of God, and he wrote it just before Israel enters the promised land, probably about 1400 BC. Now, you'll remember that for a couple of hundred years, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. Uh, Then God sends to them Moses, the Redeemer. He says to Pharaoh, what? He says, let my people go that they might worship me. Pharaoh initially won't. God works a number of miracles or plagues through Moses. Eventually, Pharaoh relents, and the people of Israel leave Egypt, heading toward the promised land. You remember this? It's all recounted in the book of Exodus. And yet, just before they enter the promised land, Moses gives them this book to help them make sense of reality. Now, just imagine you had been a slave in Egypt for a couple of hundred years you've been prevented from getting an education, you're cut off from Sunday school, cut off from any school at all, don't have books to read, all that you've got is these sort of vague stories that your parents and grandparents are telling you. You're ignorant, you're exhausted, you're confused, and yet this Moses character is saying, we're going to a land that we own by divine right. You could understand how such a person in that circumstance could be confused. You know, What in the world is this all about? Who is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and why are we going to go to the Canaanites? Can can you see why you need a book like Genesis for them to make sense of reality? And yet that's why God gives us this book, to help these Hebrew slaves and also us to make sense of the world in which we live. Now in the overarching storyline of Genesis, there are three big beginnings that we need to know about. There are actually many beginnings, beginnings of all sorts of things, but at least three that I want you to know about. The first of these is how God creates the universe. That'll be in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. God creates the universe. Now, turn with me to Genesis 1-1. It should be on page 1 of your Bible, if it's any good. Genesis 1-1. And this is certainly one of the most famous verses in the Bible, uh, probably among the f- most famous sentences in all of literature. But in Genesis 1-1, we have this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the rest of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, they fill out what that verse is all about. In this section, we'll see God creates everything, planets, stars, mountains, plants, animals, creeping things, all created by God. And it's created by the power of his word out of nothing. That's one of the big things we're going to talk about in this series, how God creates out of nothing. When we create, we actually don't create like God creates. We take pre-existing stuff and sort of shape it into other stuff. You know, we take clay and make it into a pot. God just creates stuff out of thin air. Let there be light, and boom, there's light. Let there be mountains, and there are mountains. That's one of the big ways whereby God can create, and we can't. Now, from this section, we learn some important truths about the character of God. For instance, we learn that He's self-existing. He doesn't need us, He doesn't need creation. You know, yes, there was a beginning. In the beginning, God created the world. Uh, and yet, before that, for billions and billions and billions of years, God was there. And what God was doing in the billions and billions and billions of years before God created the universe, we dare not speculate. But we know that he was there, that he didn't need us, he didn't need food, he didn't need air, he didn't need space, didn't need anything. He is a self-existent God, not reliant on us for anything. In this section, we also learn the way in which it's God who creates the universe. And again, we'll talk about this a lot in the sermons to come. We did not evolve from slime. Uh, We're not an accident of history. the, The universe was not brought here by aliens or the just accidental collision of stardust coming together. No, God spoke and things came to be. There's life creating power in his word. In this section, we also learn that God is the ruler of creation. Since he made all that exists, he can give laws and commands to this world. And again, this is so important. This is why we need to obey God, whether we want to or not. You know, sometimes people say, you know, I don't really like God. Why should I bother obeying him? Uh, well, maybe the fact that you owe your existence to him is why you should obey him. You know, just like if I build a shed, I can put in that shed whatever I please because it's my shed. So also, if God creates a universe, he can tell people in that universe how they're to live. And, you know, you might think, I don't really like that. Well, come back to me after you've created a universe and we can have a conversation. The Bible consistently points to God as Creator, as worthy of worship, worthy of obedience. Listen to Revelation four eleven. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All of this and so much more is in this first section, Genesis one one through two three, how God creates the universe. The second big section of Genesis covers one twenty six through eleven thirty two. And here we're going to see how God creates the human race, or humanity. Genesis one twenty six through 11.32, God creates humanity. Now flip over to Genesis 1.26, if you would. An incredibly important verse in the Bible. Genesis one twenty six says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Notice the uh, plural pronouns there. Again, we'll talk about that later. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in this section, we learn many important truths about the human race. For instance, we learn that we were originally created good, were made in God's image, and initially good creatures. Like, like he says, in Genesis: 131, God saw everything that He had made, including humans, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And yet we also learn in this section of Genesis how we really made a mess of things. We fell and we fell hard. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. They ate from that forbidden fruit. They distrusted and disobeyed God's word, and when that happened, they plunged all of us, the entire human race, into sin, corruption, death, and what's more, not only humans, but all of creation. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, every person that's ever been born is born with something called original sin. Original sin's a big idea, but it's a very important idea. Every baby since Adam and Eve, with the only exception of Jesus, is born with a sinful heart already polluted, already corrupted by sin, already in need of forgiveness and salvation. And this is confirmed in our experience. I mean, how, how, how long was it between when you were born and you started sinning? I mean, you've heard that old thing before, you never need to teach a kid how to lie. S- somehow we just know it instinctively. What that's pointing to is the original sin we're born with that comes from Adam and Eve. It's like Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's in this section that we'll see some really rather graphic illustrations of sin. Cain murdering his brother Abel in a rather premeditated, premeditated way. God destroying the entire human race except for Noah and his family in what's possibly one of the scariest ways to die, drowning. God doing what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, I'm sure you're familiar with it. The entire human race is sinful and outrageously so. David Kleins puts it this way. He says, From Eden to Babel, there is an ever-growing avalanche of sin, a movement from disobedience to murder, to reckless killing, to titanic lust, to total corruption and violence, to the full disruption of humanity. You might ask yourself, do you see evidence of that in our world today? You know, does that sound a little bit like the evening news? When you read the news and you hear these just horrific displays of evil, yes, be appalled by that, but in one sense, take that as simply confirmation that what the Bible teaches is true. We are not evolving into ever better creatures. We're exactly what the Bible teaches that we are. No one good, no one righteous, no, not one. Well, there's one final section of Genesis, and that covers chapters 12 through 50. really the majority of the book. And here we're going to see God create his special people, the people of Israel. It's in this section that we'll learn about a guy named Abram, who later becomes Abraham. God calls this man, he's an unbelieving pagan in the Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, go to the promised land, a land I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. And Abraham believes, he rises up and he goes to this land, not knowing anything about it. Flip over to Genesis 12, if you would. Genesis 12. I want you to at least get to this chapter. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, in this last section of Genesis, we'll meet Isaac, Jacob, Abraham's descendants, and we'll see the way in which the promises made to Abraham pass on to them and to their descendants. We'll also encounter the individual named Joseph. Now, we won't be studying his life in this particular series, but you might remember Joseph. Uh, He's the beloved son of his father, and what happens when that happens? His brothers are incredibly jealous. Jealous so much that they're willing to sell him into slavery, uh, even though at first they just wanted to murder him. They think, oh, yeah, let's murder him now. That's too harsh. Let's just sell him into slavery. It's a whole lot better. So that's what they do. And yet through a series of providential circumstances, Joseph makes it crystal clear that actually God was behind the entire thing. Yes, there was incredible sin committed by his brothers, yet it was God working through that to advance his plan for the salvation of the world. Listen to what Joseph says in Genesis 45, 4. Joseph said to his brothers, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And yet God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Did you catch the repeated emphasis on God sending him there? Yes, they did wrong. Yes, they were horribly wicked in selling their brothers into slavery. And my sons, please never consider selling any of your siblings into slavery. And yet, God used that to advance his program of redemption. And listen to what Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's story explains how the people of Israel got into Egypt, which then sets the scene for the book of Exodus. Ultimately, it was God who brought them there. It was God behind it all, working all things together for good. Well, that, in a quick nutshell, is the storyline of Genesis. Again, as we hope to get into it in the weeks to come, God will speak to us and use it to change us and to make us like his son. Now, quickly, a third question. What are some of the main lessons of the book of Genesis. What are some of the big truths that God wants to teach us in this book of beginnings? Let me give you a few. Lesson number one, God has the power and authority to do as he pleases. The God who made the universe, the God whose planet we are now sitting upon, has the power and the authority to do whatever he pleases. Now this lesson is seen everywhere in the book, from creating the universe out of nothing to striking the world with a flood, to destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, to calling Abram to go to the land of Canaan. There's a clear emphasis on God doing whatever he wants. And really, we are not in a position to challenge his authority. Again, come back to God and challenge his authority when you've created a universe. Genesis also indicates that God only does what is good, what is best. And this is so important. Uh, you know, we could imagine a God who just does whatever he wants, but that God being cruel and mean, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is good and always has our best interests in mind. Uh, one of the fascinating things about the book of Genesis is that the same word begin or the same word is found in the first chapter as in the last chapter. Any guess what that word is? It's the word good. After each of the days of creation, God saw what he had made, behold, it was very good. At the end of the Joseph narrative, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Very same word. And it sort of pulls the entire book together, indicating that yes, our God does whatever he pleases, but he only and always does what is best. This is an important lesson we all need to be reminded of time and time again. If we lose sight of the goodness of God, we can so easily become cynical and resentful. God, why did you take my job away? God, why don't you answer my prayers? God, why didn't you give me a happy marriage? What are we doing? We're questioning the goodness of God. We're doing exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And yet Genesis reminds us that, yes, God does whatever he pleases, but he is a good God. He has your best interests in mind, and he only does that which is best. Quickly, here's another lesson from Genesis. Doubting and disobeying God's word always leads to destruction. Doubting and disobeying God's word always leads to destruction. Oh, again, this is found everywhere in this book, from Cain's sin against Abel, to Abraham's sin with Hagar, to Jacob's sin against Esau. Doubting God's word, that's the root of sin, which leads to death and misery. In no account is this clearer than in the first temptation with Adam and Eve. You'll remember Satan comes in the form of a serpent, and what does he say? Genesis 3.1, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Can you hear the doubt in his voice? Did God actually say that? Well, you'll know what happened. Eve doubted, she sinned, she then led Adam into sin, and again, the entire human race was plunged into sin and death. And this is a principle we all need to learn and learn well sin does never do anybody good, it destroys, it corrupts, it leads to misery, depression, despair. Sin is bad for you individually, it's bad for your family, it's bad for our church, it's bad for our state, it's bad for our nation, it's bad for our entire world. Sin only brings forth death and therefore needs to be fled from. That adulterous relationship that you're sort of toying with on Facebook, it might seem exciting, but it will ultimately destroy you, your marriage, your family, and maybe even your entire life. Well, cheating a bit on your taxes, it might seem expedient, easy way to get ahead. Eventually, it will corrupt your integrity, steal your joy, and again, possibly destroy your life. Lying to your teachers, cheating at school, lying to your parents, that might seem to be an easy way to get out of trouble. And yet, left unchecked, it will lead you into a downward spiral, climaxing in misery and depression. Sin always destroys. Sin always corrupts. And Genesis clearly teaches this time and time again. Here's a fourth lesson from Genesis. God is holy and will judge sin. God is holy and will judge sin. Now this lesson is in Genesis so often I had to limit myself to just a few examples of it. But the way in which God judged humanity after Adam and Eve sin. God judged Cain after Cain's sin. God judged the entire human race in the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that, what took place there. This lesson comes up again and again and again. God hates sin. He hates sin intensely. And when creatures who are made in the image of God, designed to love God, designed to love their neighbor, when they rebel against that, there will be consequences. God is angry, very angry, angry enough to condemn, kill, and destroy If you're here today and you are not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we are delighted you're here. Thank you for coming. But if you're here today and you are not a Christian, this is the single most important lesson you need to learn from the book of Genesis. God will judge your sin. God will judge your rebellion. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Far more important than debating, say, creation versus evolution, far more important than debating what exactly is going on in Sodom, is the truth that the sovereign creator of the universe is angry for your rebellion. That is something you must deal with. And just be honest with yourself. Have you turned your back on your creator? Have you really thought, you know, I don't really like God messing with my life. I don't really like God telling me what to do. I'd be a whole lot happier without God in my life. Does that describe you? I know it describes me by nature. Have you done things that you knew beforehand you should not have done? Do you act in ways that are against your conscience? Do you actually do things that you criticize others for doing? Do you know what I'm getting at? This is all of us. And what Genesis is clearly teaching is that God does not take that lightly. Just like he destroyed the world in Noah's day, just like he destroyed Sodom in Lot's day, he promises terrifying judgment on all who defy him and break his laws. The same God who wrote Genesis said this in Revelation 21.6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. But as for the cowardly, you ever been cowardly? The faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, and what does Jesus say about murder? The sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. All liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Just as God flooded the world in Noah's day, a flood of wrath is coming. And if you have rebelled against your creation, and turned back on him, you will be plunged into that flood, unless you have a savior. There's a final lesson we learned from Genesis, and that's how God will show mercy to sinners who turn to him. God will show mercy to sinners who turn to him. Now, this truth is seen in nearly every account of deliverance and salvation in this book. Why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? It really was not because he was so righteous. Look at Genesis 9. It was because he had faith why did God show mercy on Lot? And again, if you know Lot's life story, he was not, not a role model. But God rescued him because he trusted in God's promises. Why did God consider Abram righteous? We talked about this in Sunday school. Was it because he was so holy? Was it because he always told the truth? Was it because he had this, all these accumulated good works? No, flip over to Genesis 15. This will be the last flip today. Look at Genesis 15, verse 3. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens, and number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now look at verse 6. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Again, what was it that moved the Lord to count Abram as righteous? It was not, again, his accumulated good works. It was not his faithful relationship with his wife. It was not because of how he loved the Gentiles around him. Very clearly, he believed the Lord. He had faith. He trusted that God would do everything he had promised he would do. In the words of Hebrews 11.6, Abraham believed that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Realize these same principles hold true for all of us today. Yes, God is angry with sinners. Yes, God will judge sin. Yes, a day of wrath is coming. And yet, if you will turn to God, embracing his promises in faith, believing what he has said, believing that he will do what he has said he will do, God will save you. He will forgive you. He will declare you righteous, your sins notwithstanding. Now, if you're wondering how God could show mercy and grace to sinners... interesting the answer is because of Jesus that's how he could count Abram righteous because he knew Jesus was coming now you think wait a minute Jesus isn't going to be born for like 2,000 years how could God credit Jesus to Abraham if Abraham's born 2,000 years before Jesus lived well obviously God knows the future this is no problem at all for God and since God knew Jesus would come live die rise again God preemptively applied that to Abraham In advance he credited that to Abraham, so that's why he's righteous in God's sight. Now, here, this side of the cross, all of this is doubly true. If you desire mercy, if you desire to be rescued from the flood of wrath that is coming, if you desire to be counted in righteous counted righteous, your faith must be in Jesus and Jesus alone. You must put your hope not in your works, not in your righteousness, not in your church attendance. Not in your recycling, not in your American citizenship, but in God's promises in Jesus. If you do that, you will be saved. You, like Abraham, will be counted as righteous. This is like John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. Oh, please, come to Jesus today. Please trust him today. Turn from your rebellion. Turn from running from God. Turn from trying to live your own way and trust in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Be rescued from the wrath that's to come. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss this further, need clarification on something that I've said this morning, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today and today be counted as righteous in God's sight. Well, quickly, one final question. How can I make the most of our sermons in Genesis? We're almost done, but how can I make the most of our sermons in Genesis? And let me give you three quick suggestions for benefiting from this series. First, read the upcoming sermon texts the week before, and especially the Saturday before the week sermon. I know I have given you this suggestion many, many times over the years. I know that many of you take me up up on it. I hope more of you will. Read the upcoming sermon texts the week before and especially the Saturday before the week's sermon. Now hopefully all of you receive our church e-newsletter. And if you don't, give your email address to myself or to Kyle. We'll get you on the mailing list. The newsletter includes every week the passage that's going to be preached on in the upcoming sermon. Additionally, if you don't want to give us your email address, this stuff is on our Facebook page. So if you go to the Facebook page and kind of search around, you'll find the same information. And let me just tell you, it will be to your advantage to read ahead. It'll better better enable you to evaluate what you're hearing, better enable you to engage with what is being preached, hopefully better enable you to examine your own life. So read the upcoming sermon text the week before, and especially the Saturday before the sermon. Maybe even consider getting your entire family together and doing this around the dinner table Saturday evening. Second suggestion. Sometime during this series, read Genesis 1 through 12 in one sitting. Sometime during this series, read Genesis 1 through 12 in one sitting. Now again, I'm not entirely sure how far we're going to get through Genesis, but we're going to at least get to chapter 12, Abraham. Again, these chapters contain themes and seeds and ideas that spread throughout the entire rest of the Bible. We've got to get these if we want to understand the whole counsel of God. Now you might be thinking, reading Genesis 1 through 12 in one sitting, that's kind of a tall order. You know, that might take me 45 minutes. Well, I imagine you don't have any problem at all dedicating that amount of time to, say, watching TV or playing video games or maybe scrolling through Facebook. If you'll do that for those entertainments, how much more important is it to hear from God through his word? So I'd encourage you sometime during this series, sit down, maybe get yourself a good cup of coffee, get a translation that you can understand, and read Genesis 1 through 12 in one sitting. One final suggestion, and with this we'll wrap up. Find somebody to talk to about what you're learning in Genesis. Find somebody, and it could really be anybody, your husband, your wife, maybe your kids, uh, co-workers, maybe join one of our growth groups. But find somebody and make it a point to talk about what you're learning from this series. I'm sure you've heard this before, but those concepts you explain to others, uh, they become just sort of etched on your mind and your soul. I've experienced this time and time again. Uh, Stuff that I've explained to others it somehow gets like downloaded into the hard drive of my heart. It's kind of amazing So also for you if you really desire to digest and to be changed by the message of Genesis talk to somebody about it What you're learning about creation what you're learning about Cain and Abel what you're learning about Noah and the Tower of Babel and Abraham so forth Just make it a point to talk to people And interestingly, this could, this just could result in some pretty interesting evangelistic conversations if you talk to your coworkers. Those are just a few ways to make the most of this series. Well, like I said at the beginning of our time together, we understand instinctively that the beginning of something shapes what that thing goes on to be and to do. Again, be it the beginning of our country, the beginning of your family, the beginning of the company you work for, how a thing is founded oftentimes determines what it goes on to be. If that's the case, how important is it then to rightly understand the book of Genesis, the book of, the book of beginnings? In this book, God has told us about the true beginning of nearly everything. But in particular, he's told us about the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the human race, and the beginning of his chosen people, the people of Israel. And I believe that as we come to understand this book of Genesis better, we'll be better equipped to live God's way in his world. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about what the Lord's going to teach us through this series. I'm excited about what He's going to do in our lives, our families, and in our church through His life-changing Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and thank You in particular for the book of Genesis. Lord, we need beginnings. We need to be oriented to why the world is the way that it is. So thank You for such a gift that Genesis is. Lord, we do pray your blessing on this series as we dig into it, open our minds and hearts, convict us of sin, lead us to repentance. Help me, Lord. You know my desire is to do this well, so guard me from saying anything amiss, anything inaccurate, anything exaggerated. Do work through your word to save and to edify your people. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.